The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, If you brought a Bible, please turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. And while you're doing that, um, I'd like to ask all of you just to take a moment with me to pray for Nepal and uh, the surrounding areas. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, um, but a large earthquake hit there yesterday. And uh, the death toll as of this morning was up over 2,000, and it'll probably go quite a bit higher than that. Uh, And many more than that were injured. And this is one of those tragedies, along with things like ISIS murdering Christians in the Middle East, that people will struggle to understand. Uh, They're going to wonder, and they're going to ask questions like, where is God in all of this? Um, I just want to say to you that according to 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is patiently waiting to fulfill his promise to us that one day, all pain and all suffering and all tragedy will be removed from our midst And all that has been made wrong by sin will be made right by him. He is not disconnected from the sufferings of humanity. Uh, He knows about it, and he's patiently waiting. And some would ask, well, what is he waiting for then? Why does he just go on and come? First of all, I would lovingly say, watch your tone, because we're talking about God. But secondly, uh, I would tell you that what 2 Peter says he's waiting for is for as many people as possible to put their faith in Christ. And so, because of that, I'm glad that he's being patient, aren't you? I am. Um, He's waiting for people to put faith in Christ and be saved from and uh, and forgiven for their sins. Uh, The reality is that this world is wrenching like a person with food poisoning from the effects of sin. And we're not going to have perfection uh, and the removal of tragedy and difficulty until the final victory is won by King Jesus. So until that day, uh, we're going to pray for the afflicted and the suffering, and we're going to trust that God will work through these things for his glory, as he always has. Okay? Um, Join me, if you would, in in faith, and uh, let's pray for Nepal, and let's pray for those Christians being persecuted. Father, we just come before you now. In the name of Jesus, first of all, we thank you, Lord. This is not a common thing to us. We've not gotten used to the fact yet that because of the finished work of Christ, we can bow our heads and we can utter words towards heaven and know that you will hear them, that you incline your ear to hear us, God. We are still enamored with the fact that you invite us to speak to you like sons and daughters because we know in and of ourselves, Lord, we were not worthy of that privilege. But we thank you that because of Christ, we have it. And so, Lord, right now we're exercising that privilege. You said we could come boldly before your throne, that we could bring our prayers and our petitions to you, Lord. We could bring the things that vex us. We could bring the things that cause us anguish. And so, Lord, we're doing that today as your people. This earthquake, the suffering of the people of Nepal that were already in many times and in many situations desperate, Lord, they're they're suffering from the effects of the curse upon this world. And God, we just ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, minister grace to them, Lord, that you would... um, through this tragedy, that if people's minds are turned towards eternity and they're turned towards mortality, God, that they would, um, as people that maybe have been in darkness, they would begin to grope and begin to search and that they would find you. In the same way, we were sheep wandering and confused, but you came and you 
brought us into the fold. We ask that you would do that there, Lord. We ask that you would uh, just supernaturally guide all the aid workers, anybody that's putting their hands in to help, God. Um, we just ask, Lord, that somehow through all of this, your promise would be true, that it would be worked for the good of those that love you and for your glory. We pray for those Christian brothers and sisters right now that are living in fear of persecution by those who hate them simply because they identify with you. Lord God, we ask that you would supernaturally undergird them by your strength. Lord, we feel that. It causes anguish in our souls. Our hearts are troubled by it. But God, we will not, we will not sit in anxiety and worry. We've come to turn this over to you. We know, Lord God, that you are sovereign and you are king over all. And we ask, Lord, that you would have your way in those situations. We ask that you would work through them. And uh, we thank you for those that do come to the point where they have a choice between denying you or the blade that they're choosing rightly. Please give them the strength to do that. And please, Lord, um, take care of those that are left in the wake of that type of destruction. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we're going to continue this week in our journey through the book of Titus. Uh, as we've said before, this is a pastoral epistle, which means it is primarily instructions from Paul the Apostle to Titus, who he calls his son in a common faith. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've managed to make it through five verses. And if all goes well, we should make it through five more verses tonight. But we shall see. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're going to be dealing primarily today with the qualifications for an elder. Uh, Paul gave these qualifications to Titus so that he could set things in order on the island of Crete by appointing elders. Uh, and as we discussed last week, that term also overlaps with the terms pastor and overseer. Um, and, and I know last week there were some thunderstorms and stuff, and, and it seemed like maybe there was a big hole blown in the middle of the sanctuary. I think a lot of you just didn't want to get hit by lightning, so... Good job using wisdom. Unfortunately, what you missed was a really heavy doctrinal lift that we did last week. I looked at the audio time. I think it was like an hour and 13 minutes. So if you were here last week, sorry about that. But not really. Uh, it, it took that long for us to work through what had to be worked through. And so if you weren't here last week and you are a member of Love City or intend on becoming a member, I would ask that you go back and take a look at that. The audio is already on the website. And uh, it's very formative and very important for us as a church for you to understand how we view leadership structure from the scriptures and understand kind of um, how we see all of that. So if you would go back and take a look at that, if you missed it, I'd appreciate that. Uh, I'm just going to review real quick just because I'm going to be using some of these terms as we continue on this week. And so if you missed it last week, you might spend a lot of time trying to figure out what I'm talking about instead of being able to continue on through these verses with us. So I'll just give you these few things. First of all, there are three terms used to describe the same office of leadership in the New Testament, okay? Uh, and we see Peter use these terms interchangeably in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 2. We hung out there a long time last week, okay? <coughs> so uh, those three terms are elder, pastor, and overseer, okay? So if you're paying attention, you may have already... An alarm went off and you went, wait, what? Uh, here's what I'm saying. I'll say it plainly. Pastors are elders. Elders are pastors. And both sometimes are referred to as overseers. And like I said, if that's something you've not heard before, if that's kind of a foreign idea to you, go back, check out the audio from last week. We, we took the time to really pull that apart. We only really dealt with one verse out of Titus. That was verse 5 last week uh, and spent a lot of time qualifying it. 
Um, the overarching idea that comes out of all that is said about elders in the scripture is that they are called to be sacrificial servant shepherds. So when you hear me say elder, or you hear me say pastor, or you hear me say overseer, the overarching idea, the thing we get most prominently out of the scriptures when that office is talked about, when that leadership title is talked about, is that they should be servant shepherd leaders, okay? Um, you may already be wondering, why should I care about the qualifications of an elder, especially if you are not one, and maybe you don't believe that you ever would or could be an elder, okay? I'm going to give you a few reasons to care about it, because I am aware of the human tendency for you to um, not care so much about the what if you don't have a why to go with it, right? When you're a kid, you know, I tell my kids, go do this. Why? Max has learned how to say why. All is not well at the Marquee House, <laughs> because I, <laughs> I don't think he understands yet when I tell him, because I said so, you know what I mean? He, he wants an answer. Can I have a snack? No. Why? And he's cute, so it works on his mother a lot. But anyways, we'll talk about that later. Um, I know you guys, but you guys are not two years old and asking for a snack, and I'm trying to get you to believe, uh, you know, some pretty heavy stuff here doctrinally, so, and we're working through it. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a why. Why should you care about the qualifications of an elder? Why would we spend you know, time going through the book of Titus is in an expositional manner uh, when, you know, the majority of you may never be in the office of an elder. Here's a couple of reasons. One, Hebrews 13, 17 calls every believer to obey and submit to their leaders. How you like that one? That's fun. I'll go even farther. Um, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not submission until you disagree. I'm called to submit to godly leaders in my life. And it's not submission until I actually have a point where I might disagree with them. Until then, it's just agreeance. That was fun, wasn't it? I figured I'd get it started off, something that would really pump you up, and then we'd move on from there. So that was it. There you go. Um, so first of all, Hebrews 13, 17 calls every believer to obey and submit to their leaders. First of all, what we have to say is that assumes that you are part of a local church that has leaders. I think it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews just assumes that if you belong to Jesus, that you're a part of a local church and that you have leaders that you're submitted to. Um, I know that it's become fancy and somewhat sophisticated in the last decade or so to say things like, well, I'm really hip on Jesus, but not so much the church. That's a problem, because the Jesus that you're hip with, my fingers are in the air, um, he said that he died for the church. And he inspired writers to say stuff like, you should have leaders in your life and you should be a part of a local church. So I don't know, if you can reconcile that some other way, go for it, but I don't think you can. Um, so, the writer of Hebrews assumes you're a part of a local church that has leaders. Secondly, if Hebrews 13, 17 calls every believer to listen to and submit to leaders, it should make you want to understand what godly elders look like before you're obeying and submitting to them, right? I, I don't want you submitting to somebody that isn't qualified to be a leader in God's house. I don't want to submit to somebody that just pinned a badge on themselves and said, hey, I'm Deacon Pastor Bishop you know, whatever, whatever, right? And so now I got to do what he says. No, if you're not qualified biblically, brother, take that badge off and sit down, right? Amen. I'll say amen for you and let you know when they're supposed to be in there. Uh, okay, so here's the second reason. I'm not done yet. First Peter 5, 3 says that elders should live as examples to the flock. Okay, so one of the other things that elders are supposed to do, leaders in God's church, are they, they're supposed to be examples to the flock. Um, Hebrews 13, 7 says to consider the outcome of the faith of your leaders and then imitate their faith. Okay, so even if you've not been called uh, to the office of overseer, pastor, elder, uh, you are called to imitate their faith. And so the qualifications and or commands given to elders really 
pertain to every believer. Um, however, James does make it clear that elders will be held to a higher account. Um, I, I've said this the last couple weeks, and I'll just say it again in case you haven't been here. T- to just really clarify what I'm saying, if, if you ever think, I can, I can do this thing I'm about to do, or I can not do this thing that I'm not about to do because I'm not a leader, you've probably derailed. That's not a real solid theological uh, outworking of your faith, okay? So, a godly leader who has something other than a name badge he made for himself to show fruit of his faith is someone who can be safely imitated and followed as they also follow Christ. But what I don't want you to do is be ignorant of what the Bible says a leader in God's house or as a part of God's church should look like. So that's why we're going to work through this, okay? And some of you, within the sound of my voice, may be called to be a leader among God's people. And so this will um, apply to you directly in, uh, because of that. So I just want to say in, in light of all that, that I'm really, really thankful for men and women of God who are and have been examples to me throughout my journey with Jesus. As I've learned and grown as a believer, uh, I'm able to see how those folks have conducted themselves and I've been, I've been able to imitate what they are doing even if that was before I fully understood why they were doing it. Some, you know what I'm talking about? And so I'm, I'm just grateful that there was people that were obeying Jesus and obeying these commands that were walking out a life with Christ that I was able to look at and imitate as I've grown as a believer. So, and some of you are in this, uh, that, that I look to like that are in this room, and I just want to thank you for being faithful to Jesus. It's meant a lot to me. Okay, so let's read Titus uh, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to go to verse 9. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The list we just read means that God has specific qualifications for leaders in the church. Uh, leaders should not be chosen at random. You know, when you come in the door, everyone shouldn't be handed a straw. Who, you know, the five people with the longest, all right, you guys are in charge, let's do this. Uh, it doesn't look like that anywhere in the scriptures. Um, so they shouldn't be chosen at random or just because they volunteer. Simple desire is not qualification. Um, or even because they are natural leaders, that is not enough. Leaders should be chosen because they match the qualifications given in the scriptures. Uh, to say all of that shortly, a man must be called, but he must also be qualified. Okay? Um, so starting here in verse 5, uh, this language of set in order, where he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. That's, in the Greek, that's a medical term. It's like the straightening of a crooked limb, like you snap something the wrong way, right? Um, the setting of that and making it straight again. And that gives us some insight into the roles of pastors and elders and should make us pray for them. Yeah. Uh, okay, verse 6. So here's what it says. Namely, if any man is above reproach. Let's hang out there for a second. Notice Paul didn't say, if a very gifted man is above reproach, or if a very educated man is above reproach, although many times elders will be 
both gifted and educated, and those things can be very helpful. The call of God to the office of elder is not reserved for those who we would probably be prone to select for the role. And I would say probably the best illustration of this is Jesus' choice of Peter, who was a simple fisherman, to be the leader of the disciples. You understand what I mean when I say that? It says, if any man is above reproach. And so I just think we need to open up our minds a little bit beyond what some of our prejudices could be about this. So what does it mean to be above reproach? To be above reproach means that their personal conduct and their interactions with others, both inside and outside the church, are to be of such moral quality that they do not bring shame or in any way disgrace the body of Christ or the name of Jesus. That's what it means to be above reproach. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. To be above reproach does not mean that they have to be perfect because nobody will be completely rid of sin, right, until our final victory is won. Uh, However, we should be striving daily to put sin to death. Um, This also doesn't mean that elders are able to live without the possibility of accusation. Okay, So above reproach would maybe give you this idea, well, they live so squeaky clean that nobody could ever say anything about them. The problem with that is people, right? So (laughs) if it was true that... uh, that an elder had to live without the possibility of accusation whatsoever, a couple things for you to consider. First of all, Jesus would have been disqualified for ministry, right? Because perfect, sinless Jesus, the healer of the sick, the lame and the blind, the provider of sustenance to the poor, the hope for all mankind, our Messiah and our Savior, did he have accusations hurled against him? Yes, he did. So that can't be what that's saying. Um, The key to living above reproach is to live in such a way That when the truth is sorted out, those who would slander you would be put to shame. And we find that, that's according to 1 Peter 3.16. Here's what it says. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the the call here is to live above reproach. You want to, you know, don't just throw dirty clothes on top of the skeletons in your closet. Deal with them, right? Get them out of there. Repent and move on. Okay. Um, another reason that this call for pastor elders to live above reproach does not mean they must never sin or else they would be disqualified. I know that's not true because one of the ways they should lead by example is in repentance. One of the ways that godly leaders should be an example to the flock is they should be one of the first ones to be humble and repent when they do sin. And they should repent openly and they should repent just like they're asking everybody else to do and have themselves held accountable to Jesus Christ himself, and to the brethren, okay? So uh, elders should be a good example of godly living, but also repentance when they fall short of that mark. Uh, Okay, so the next qualification is the husband of one wife. First thing I'll say is that it's interesting that the qualifications for leadership in the church start with an examination of the man's family. You see that? Above reproach, and it goes directly into talking about how is it going at home. Uh, The church is the family of God, and there is much parallel between how the little families and the big family should be led. Um, First of all, I want to say out of this that we do not believe this means you have to be married to be an elder, okay? If that were the case, then the guy writing the letter and the guy he professes as Lord would be disqualified from eldership, right? So we got Paul writing the letter, best as we can tell, not married, and he calls... 
um, Jesus, King and Lord, and it's kind of who he's writing about, also not married, right? So what really the way you could read this is if he is married, he's the husband of one wife, and then it's going to go on to talk about his children, if he has children, right, such and such. So we don't believe that being married with children is a qualification for eldership or leadership in any way in, among God's people. Um, <clears throat> What this also rules out is polygamy, which if you've been married to one wife more than a year and you genuinely think you want another one, we have coupons in the back for a free psych evaluation, okay? You can pick those up at that little table out in the, out in the hallway. Um, <laughs> that's not a knock on the ladies, just marriage is, marriage is a much, as much about making you holy as it is making you happy and probably a lot more about making you holy, Right? You want to talk about iron sharpening iron, have someone in your house, in your face, all the time to see your faults, and, uh, and you got to try to be sweet and live your life totally lashed with them. It's, it's a good thing. It's from God. It's a gift, but it's meant for two people to take part of, okay? So I don't think polygamy is God's best plan in any situation, and clearly you cannot be a leader in God's church and have multiple wives. So there you go. Uh, I do not believe, uh, as some people do, that this disqualifies a man who is remarried due to either his wife passing away or if he is biblically divorced due to adultery and he was not the perpetrator. Okay? Um, the next one here is having children who believe and are not rebellious. I, I want to stop and just say something real quick um, about expositional Bible preaching. Um, sometimes we preach series that are topical, so we will preach about uh, a certain topic out of the Bible and then we will find verses and stories that support that. Uh, or, for example, we did life lessons. It took us on a track through several different stories, and we were looking for uh, different lessons out of people's lives. Those are kind of topical. Sometimes what we do is expositional, and, and what that means is we're going to go verse by verse through an entire book. And so if you're used to only topical preaching that is accented by fireworks and, you know, um, ice cream spewing from the ceiling when it's done, then expositional Bible preaching might seem boring to you, but expositional Bible preaching is really exciting for a couple different kinds of people. Disciples that really want to know the word, like they're pumped that somebody's going to take them verse by verse through the scriptures, even if it's not the, what may seem to be the most exciting subject matter. Secondly, <coughs> uh, people who really want to know Maybe they're not a Christian, maybe they're not a disciple, but they're really curious about what it is the Bible says. They're going to be thankful that somebody's not going to just jump around and cherry pick verses to get people to shout loud, but they're going to work through exactly what the text is saying. And so uh, I'm just assuming that everybody that's here is one of those two types of people. And, and I want you to know that I realize the qualifications of an elder um, is probably not going to you know, sweep the nation as this week's most exciting uh, you know, teaching on the Bible. However, I'm just glad that God uh, loved us enough, enough to give us these qualifications to help us to understand what it is supposed to look like when Jesus changes a life and then calls that person to be a leader among God's people. So um, the, the next uh, qualification we have here is that he having children who believe and are not rebellious, okay? Um, it also uses the word dissipation in here, not something probably in your everyday vocabulary. Uh, dissipation, if you just think about what the prodigal son did, he's like textbook dissipation. Just squandering money, doing whatever, party boy, uh, kind of freewheeling, no responsibility, hakuna matata. 
that's dissipation. Um, so if you have a Hakuna Matata tattoo and or that was your high school quote, you may have participated in some point at dissipation and you should repent of that, okay? <laughs> if Timon and Pumbaa is on your back somewhere in permanent ink, you might want to get to this verse and pray about it, all right? Um, so that's dissipation. Uh, so what this, of course, means, however, we need to just think through this. This, of course, means children who are of an age to have put faith and trust in Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? That means you can't come to my house and, you know, interview my son, Max, that's going to be two in July, and say, Max, who is your Lord? And when he jumps up and runs to the fridge and starts banging on the door and saying yogurt after that question, that's not a disqualification for you to come kick me out of eldership, okay? We have to use our heads here. Uh, my great hope is that as soon as Max is old enough to understand that Jesus Christ died for his sins, that he's going to grab a hold of that truth and submit himself to Jesus for the rest of his life and then spend the rest of his life telling other people about it. That's my great hope, and I'm raising him towards that end. Um, but right now, the brother wants yogurt, okay? So uh, <laughs> he's not trying to have your theological discussion. And uh, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be an elder, okay? Um, the bottom line here and what we see out of these couple qualifications is that if a man does not lovingly shepherd his wife and his own kids first, if he has them, he has no business trying to love and shepherd the rest of the family of God. Okay? So you could summarize those qualifications that way. Uh, many men have shipwrecked their life by getting this right here out of order. Uh, they've sacrificed their families on the altar of whatever they perceive to be success in ministry. And I'm just telling you guys right now, because I love you and I love my family, I'm not going to do that. It's not the best thing for my family, for sure. It's not the best thing for this church. Uh, so what that means is practically, if I'm, say, on a walk with my kids or I'm on a date with my wife and you call me, you're likely going to get my voicemail. And when I'm done ministering to and loving on my family, I will check that voicemail and I will get right back to you. I promise. You can be mad, sad, glad about that, but that is what it is. Because I'm going to obey these verses. And I think Paul was intentional in having us take a looking glass and peer into the family life of a man before, as the first layer of qualification on whether or not he should be a leader among God's people. You guys cool with that? You stare at me about it or do whatever, but it's, it's, that's what the book says. So praise God. Um, the next qualification, it says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Again, I was saying this starts out by him saying appoint elders. Then he refers to the elders as overseers. Um, and then, you know, we see in Ephesians, Ephesians is the only place where the word pastor is used, but the word for pastor really is shepherd in the Greek. And then again, we see Peter use all these terms interchangeably. That's why we believe that he's talking about all the same thing, because that's one office. Um, so Paul says above reproach again. You may have noticed that phrase has now happened twice. So that's clearly very important. I just wanted to mention that to you. Uh, the idea of a steward over the house of God is a little lost on us because we don't really employ that system much anymore. Uh, but it's helpful to understand what a steward is for us to understand the role of elders. So I'll just break it down for you a little bit. Uh, someone in that day who was wealthy enough to do so, would hire a steward over his house. Okay, say he's a businessman, he travels a lot, and he's got to do that in order to, you know, keep his business going or whatever. He would hire a steward over his house. The steward's job would be to take care of pretty much everything, including the running of the day-to-day, -day, making sure everyone was doing what they were supposed to do. He would even handle the finances of the guy that owned the house. 
Uh, it's kind of like what you see with Pharaoh uh, and Joseph in Egypt. Pharaoh's like, here's my signet ring, get it done. I'm going to go sit over here and have somebody fan me and feed me grapes, right? So um, that's kind of the idea of a house steward. Um, he would do all that, the steward would handle the finances, and then he would report to the owner of the house, okay? He had the backing and authority to get everything done that was expected to be done in the house by the owner, but he worked for the owner of the house. If it's not plain yet, I'll lay it out for you. Pastors are stewards. Jesus is the owner. That's why this language is being used. And so understanding that house steward idea helps us get a little bit what the role of an elder is. Uh, I, would, I would just caution you to be on the alert when you hear men say things like, my church or my ministry, they may have forgotten that they are but a steward. Okay? Uh, the next qualification is that they are not self-willed. A leader among God's people can have neither a stubborn and rebellious spirit or a selfish one. Neither of those will do. Uh, both of those can be summed up by this qualification. That's essentially what's being said. The next is that it, uh, a leader among God's people cannot be quick-tempered. Okay? This is probably why there are not very many 20-year-old elders. Because most of the time, um, all those little connections haven't been made in the brain yet by 20 years old. And, and, and if, you know, I'm just using my own life as an example, um, I was probably a little more quick-tempered 10 years ago than I am now. Uh, here's what Proverbs says about it. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered person does foolish things. Don't you like Proverbs? Man, it's just so plain and to the point. A quick-tempered person does foolish things. Here's my question to you. Has anyone ever in here ever done something that, when they lost their temper that they would not have done under normal circumstances? Anybody in here ever acted different because you lost your temper than you would have under normal circumstances? Some of you have two hands in the air. You're starting to stand. I get it. You can sit back down. Uh, I'm standing, so I didn't think it was necessary to you know, anymore let you know. The answer is yes, many times. Uh, I have not been self-controlled and lost my temper and done and or said things that later were regretted. Um, a person that is prone to be quick-tempered cannot be a leader among God's people because they're going to have to deal with very serious situations. Sometimes they're going to have to deal with very difficult people. And they cannot be someone prone to just fly off the handle. They need to be led by God's Spirit. They need to be someone that has a long wick. Okay? This, however, does not mean that leaders should never get angry. Some things warrant anger, like sin and oppression, and sometimes the right response is anger, but anger must be without sin, and we're told that in Ephesians 4.26. God gets angry. If your God is never angry, it's the wrong God, okay? God's anger is part of what validates his love. If he was not angry at sin, it wouldn't have mattered that much that he loved us so much to pay the price he did. Right? It wouldn't have mattered. And so God is loving, but he does also get angry when wrong things happen and his people are uh, taken advantage of. So leaders uh, shouldn't be completely devoid of emotion. That would be weird. Uh, okay, so the next qualification is that um, a leader among God's people must not be addicted to wine. I believe that we can infer safely from this that addiction in general is to be avoided by all. I could spend the rest of the night making a case for that from the scriptures. I think most of you would probably buy that from me. That 
addiction in general should be avoided by all, but that it is specifically a disqualification from leadership. Okay, here's why. The issue is mastery. Mastery. The only master a Christian should have is the one who bought them with his blood, and his name is Jesus. That's why addiction disqualifies from leadership. And it's not a good idea in general. Okay? Uh, Addiction, by its very nature, tends to be something that is not necessarily the choice of the person struggling with it. Uh, It could be compared a lot to slavery, a lot to wearing shackles and chains. The good news is uh, Jesus Christ is a chain breaker, and uh, addiction need not be your master. And uh, when Jesus is your master, all the other masters lose because he's the biggest and the baddest around. Okay? Amen. Uh, The next one is not pugnacious. How many of you have used that in a sentence this week? Bet not. Okay. Uh, So some translations will translate this word violent. Pugnacious could be translated violent. The term here is meant to convey the idea of a physically violent person as well as a verbally violent person. Okay? Leaders among God's people need to be gentle and loving for sure. But this does not mean that they are pansies or pushovers. Servant shepherds have to love and feed the sheep, but they also have to deal quickly and decisively with wolves. Um, Some might disagree with this, but I do not believe that this call to not be pugnacious is a call to pacifism. I believe pacifism is impossible to defend from the scriptures. If you disagree with me on that, I would just ask you to put that on the second tier shelf. We can still be friends, but... I'm sticking to where I'm at on it. I would say, however, even though, however, anytime force is used in the defense of others, it should be the minimal amount necessary to stop an aggressor, and it should still be done within the bounds of self-control and a sound mind, okay? That was kind of a long way for me to say this. I'll translate it for people like me. Hulking out and beating up some guy, even if he really deserves it, uh, out of vengeance or any other motive, but the immediate defense of someone who can't defend themselves is not okay. All right? So just because you stumble upon the right situation, you've been itching to beat somebody, and you find somebody doing something that would be contrary to God's word, and you're like, yes, it's time. Boom! You know, the Hulk shirt rips, and you just destroy this person, and then you're like, oh, that feels better. You have sinned, and you should stop. Okay? Um... <clears throat> But I do not believe that Jesus would require anybody to uh, stand by and watch somebody that can't defend themselves just be violated. I, I just don't see that in his character. So some would disagree with me on that. Hallelujah. We're still friends. Long distance high five. Ready? Go. Um, if all of you that high fived do think Jesus is a pacifist, let's stay afterwards, okay? I, we'll still be friends. I just wish we could talk about it for a little bit. It'd be good. Okay. Um, so here is the next requirement. Uh, that he is not fond of sordid gain, okay? The bottom line here is that if financial gain is anywhere in the motivation of someone who's serving as an elder, they have messed up, and they should no longer be an elder. They should not be a leader among God's people. Um, the issue, again, comes down to mastery, okay? In Matthew 6, Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters, for you will love one and you will hate the other. He says specifically, you cannot serve both God and money. This idea was illustrated very uh, tragically, but well, 
in an article that I read recently, um, there's this guy, I get emails from him, uh, it's just one of the subscription things that I haven't set to junk yet, but um, this thing comes across and it's somebody that he was at a conference and he's talking to this pastor and this pastor was telling him the situation he was in, you know, um, they had like a 10-year anniversary, the church had grown, done really well, uh, added staff and all that type of stuff, added overhead, um, and so here comes the 10-year anniversary, and, and he goes into that believing that God had had him prepare a message on righteous living and God's holiness. And so he goes in there and steps up to the pulpit and, uh, and looks around, and he notices that the biggest giver is there, and he apparently is somehow aware that the biggest giver would not appreciate a sermon on righteous living in light of God's holiness. And so he stands up and says, this morning's message is about how much God loves you. <clears throat> and this writer is trying to be gracious as he's writing the article and say, you know, this is, this is stuff that pastors go through. This is part of the pressures they feel or whatever. But I just want to say this publicly right now on audio and in front of you. If I ever catch myself changing the message because I'm afraid somebody, anybody, or everybody may not give in the offering, the very next message you're going to hear from me is my resignation. Because I don't think it's just some pressure. I don't think it's just something, well, we got to have grace on that. I'm a preacher of the gospel, commissioned by King Jesus himself as a steward entrusted with the care of his people and his message, and I will not prostitute myself for financial gain, to pay the bills, to any of that. Period. And I'm not going to peddle some perverted form of the truth for financial gain, whether it's to pay payroll or rent or whatever else. Man, God has all the money. You understand that? And if he's called us to do this mission, he's going to provide for what we need. Some of you may not understand why we meet in a church where we share a facility with another one. You know why we do that? Because anything else that would have allowed us to be in the geographical area that God called us to be would have cost us four grand a month. And I would have had to turn every time I got up here into a fundraiser, and I would have ended up being in the place that this guy was in, and then I would have had to quit because I won't do it. That's part of why we're here among other things, and that's part of why a lot of things are going the way they are right now, because I will not put us in a position where I got to stand up here and look around and worry where the big giver is and what they're going to like about the verse one way or the other. And the other thing I would just say about it is, if, if you're convicted by the word, man, you, you, you ought to give more on that day, because you've just received a gift from God. That's a precious privilege to be convicted by his spirit. And you ought to write a bigger check than you intended to. What are checks? It's this thing you used to fill out, and it was a way that money was transferred. Fill out a bigger debit card statement when you're convicted, okay? <clears throat> the other thing we got to know is that the same Bible preaching may encourage one person and convict another on the exact same day. I love the people of God too much to rob them the opportunity to receive both of these blessed gifts from the Father who loves them. The Puritans were fond of saying that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. I'm going to preach the word of God, and God's going to take care of the money. And he's either going to use you and your generosity to fund his mission, or he's going to use somebody else's. And I'm not worried about it. And I love you too much to pander to you. I'm not going to worry about whether you're going to give or not. And I would hope that I'm in a group 
in a room full of people that when God cuts them all the way down to the deepest part of their heart, it makes them want to give more because it shows how much, how real he is, how much of a father he is, and how much he really loves them. That was a good spot to amen. Uh, here's the next qualification. It says, okay, so it's changing now from he should not be this, he should not be this, he should not be this. Now it's, he's flipping to things that they should be. It says um, he should be uh, not fond of sort of gain, but hospitable. Hospitable, okay? Uh, this doesn't just mean able to throw a good party or willing to entertain people in their home, though both of these things are helpful. I think if somebody's going to be a leader among God's people, they should be willing to open their home to them. They should be willing to go to other people's home. They should be willing to um, be hospitable in that way. But there's more in this term than that. And part of how we know it is because of the time it was written. Early church hospitality was a bit more robust than our idea of it today. I mean, we think hospitality, we think I'll make some you know, buffalo chicken dip, open up a bag of chips, have people come over, we'll schmooze a little bit. Boom, I was hospitable. Yes, but there's more to it. Don't I made the mistake, I forgot, I'm not supposed to mention food because then I lose all of you for the next five minutes, so leave the buffalo chicken dip in your mind and come on back, let's keep talking about what hospitality is, okay? Um, early church hospitality was a bit more robust, it included taking in those who were on the run from persecutors, uh, and being willing to give out of your family's supply to provide for the needs of others. This was wrapped up in that. This also doesn't mean to be a leader among God's people that you have absolutely no boundaries whatsoever, that everybody is welcome to just roll in the front door of your house whenever they please. Um, that would be violating the first part of the qualifications. Uh, the family of God should remember that the leaders are called to shepherd their own families well, or else they are disqualified from shepherding others altogether. If the leaders can't get any time to minister to their own families without someone demanding that they pay them attention, how can they be faithful to the crystal clear command to uh, shepherd their own home before they presume to be a shepherd among God's people. Okay, here's the next thing. He should uh, be hospitable and he should love what is good. Okay, first of all, I want to say that this loving what is good is not the word agape in the Greek. This is kind of a, it's, it's, it's one word that kind of encompasses this phrase. This phrase gets translated loving in almost every Loving what is good in almost every translation, it could really just as easily be translated, he should be fond of what is good or rejoice in what is good. Either of those would have been sufficient to communicate the idea. The point here, what it's saying is that the elders should be men who are energized by good and godly things. The source of joy and satisfaction for them should not come from worldly pursuits or worldly things, but from the good things of God. They should be overcome with joy when people meet Jesus and are baptized. They should be overcome with joy when people are being discipled into mature believers. The kingdom of God advancing and gospel mission being accomplished should be a great encouragement to somebody that's a real pastor shepherd. They should draw life and energy from those things. Next it says that they should be sensible. Okay, Many translations, maybe yours will say sober-minded. Um, this was an important quality in a leader. He uses this same word 10 times in his short letters to Timothy and Titus. And so this is something on the mind of Paul when he's talking about the qualifications of somebody that should be a leader. They should be sensible or sober-minded. Uh, what this does not mean is that a guy, you know, a guy has to have no sense of humor whatsoever, right? Because the reality is it'd be very hard for anyone to relate to somebody 
uh, who always was like the character that Ben Stein portrays, right? If I got up here week after week and said, please open your Bible to Titus 1. We're going to study the Word together. And my tone never left that, you know, never made an attempt at cracking a joke. I realize most of the time you're laughing because the joke's so bad, but whatever, at least you're laughing, right? Um, that's not what sober-minded means. You don't have to be a total um, bump on a log to meet this qualification. Um, what it does mean is that you, you, can't, you can't have a guy that doesn't ever know how to take something seriously, right? You have people that, for whatever reason, like their default is to crack a joke about something. You can't have someone be a leader among God's people. Someone comes and says, says to them, hey, uh, I lost a family member this week, you know, and they, they crack some joke about it because they're uncomfortable with the situation. Like, that's not a proper approach to counseling that person. Um, so you, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be sensible. There's also in that this, like, an ability just to clearly think a person that, uh, has the ability to kind of assess a situation and execute a plan. All of that is in that sober-minded and sensible requirement. Uh, the next three we'll kind of take together. It says that they should be just, devout, and self-controlled. Uh, a pastor or a leader in, ch- in the church must be just, which means he is right towards other men. He must be devout. Some translations will say holy. He must de- be devout, which means he is right towards God. He must be self-controlled, which means he is right towards himself. Matthew Henry said this about it. He said, how unfit are those to govern a church who cannot even govern themselves? I would agree. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit and should be plainly evident in the life of a leader. Uh, verse 9 says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching... So that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Right? So, able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Those who are called to serve God's people as shepherd leaders, flat out, should be men of the word. I mean, I think that kind of goes without saying. They should be men who find their life and sustenance in God's word. They should thirst for it as a man crossing a desert thirsts for water. If you've never crossed a desert and you can't relate to that, think about eating a whole bag of pretzels and not having anything to drink. How bad do you want some water right then? Real bad. That's how a man of God should want to get a hold of his Bible any chance he gets. He should be desperate for it. They should hold fast to the word when they teach. And this, that doesn't mean that outside resources cannot be referenced to help make a point. But if the overwhelming majority of what a man teaches God's church is not flowing from and rooted in God's word then he has fallen into air, right? So if week after week somebody's getting up here and open up Time Magazine to preach a sermon, uh, that's a problem. Or whatever his favorite author is outside of the scriptures, all, all of his reference material is coming from that. If, if you're not studying God's word, what, I mean, what are you even doing? That's what God's people get together to do. We sit under the anointing and the power of God's perfect word, okay? Um, Elders need to be able to faithfully teach the word, but knowledge of the word will not be enough. There will need to be relationship with the author to have any hope of effectiveness. Knowledge of the word of God will not be enough without relationship with the author. It will have no effectiveness. That's true because the word of God is not primarily for the providing of information. 
It's for the causing of transformation. There is information, but it causes transformation. And if somebody doesn't make that connection, it's just going to fall on deaf ears and it's going to have no power. Okay? Here's the last thing it says. It says, uh, he must be able to refute those who contradict. There will always be those who will stray into false doctrines and heresies, and they will seek to drag others along with them. And you can believe what you want to, but some mush-mouthed, jelly-spined, weak-kneed, scared-of-conflict little fellow with perfect hair and a perma-smile is probably not what God had in mind when he was talking about an elder needing to be able to confront those who would contradict God's truth. Someone who's able to refute those who would contradict the pure gospel of Christ. Okay? Here's what Luther said about it. He said, a preacher must be both soldier and shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. You guys aren't Luther fans. I am. I think that's a good quote. All of these qualifications describe the qualities that are required to be a faithful steward of our master's house and a faithful shepherd to his people. Anyone who is shepherded by an elder ought to remember who that pastor is representing, and that pastor better remember he is still under the authority of the master. The master of the house is none other than King Jesus Jesus himself. And why is that? Why is it that King Jesus is the master of the house? Well, he paid for the house and everyone in it with the blood that flowed from his very own veins. You see, the reason Jesus is the master of the house and anybody that serves him isn't only an under-shepherd to him who is the chief shepherd is because he's the one that paid the price to fix the problem that kept God's people away from him. That problem was sin, and every single one of us suffers from it. The same reason there's earthquakes and people being martyred, sin has wrecked this world. This world is wrenching like somebody that just ate bad seafood. And it all started in the garden Two people were created perfect. God gave them a command. Don't do this. Better believe they did it. You can get mad at them, but ultimately, we could have made it all the way down to today without somebody doing it, and then it probably would have been you that did it. Somebody was going to do it. Somebody was going to sin. They did it. And ever since then, every single one of us have been sinners by nature and choice. The reality is, the truth is, let me just boil all that down and say to you very lovingly, you are not perfect. That's the soft way for me to say it. I'm going to to say it the hard way too. You are not good enough for relationship with God. Let me finish. By yourself. But because of what Jesus did, right? What sin does is creates a chasm between us and God. What sin does is is, is like an earthquake. It opened opened up this, this expanse between us and God that there was no way for us to get across. But Jesus made a way that we could. He built the bridge. He did it by living a perfect life, fulfilling the requirement that would have kept us in relationship with God, but none of us could do it. He lived a perfect life, and then because he did that, that qualified him to step in, to pay the price that would suffice to turn the wrath of God away from us so that we could be forgiven of sin. He died on the the cross. He purchased us with his blood. That's why he's master of the house. That's why he's chief shepherd, and I'm really, really glad about it. He didn't stay dead. 
Everything that he said, all the stuff that people thought he was crazy when he was saying, was validated when three days later the stone rolled away and he was risen from the grave. He showed himself to many, showed up to his disciples, said, peace be with you. I'm resurrected. Everything I said was true. Now let's get to work. And that's our legacy. That's our heritage. We are just a continuation of that command. Where Jesus said to his men before he ascended, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're doing. That's what this is about. Our great hope here is that as many people as possible, we're, we're, we're trying to actively engage in the mission of accomplishing what it is Father God is waiting for patiently. That as many people as possible would come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, that they would take their trust from in themselves or whatever other error-filled place they put their trust, and they would place it in the one who will never, ever fail, the only one who loved them enough to step in their place to pay the price that was required for them to be reconciled to the God that made them. Praise God today. If you've not put faith in Christ, if you've not believed in that gospel message, if you've not surrendered your life to the only good chief shepherd and master over all, we would ask that you would do that today. We invite you to do it. We implore you to do it because as much as God is patiently waiting, it seems to be if you look around that time is short. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to say time is short. And I would wish that instead of just being on a team that is wandering around in darkness, not knowing what the heck is going on, that you would jump on the team that does know what's going on and help us get the job done. Not only that you would receive the light of the goodness of the gospel, that you would always also join us in helping others to have that great truth, to finally be loved in the way that they were created to be. To finally be affirmed in the way that they're searching and, and they keep going from person to person and substance to substance trying to find something to fill that gap inside of them and it just keeps failing. We want as many people as possible to stop that terrible, wretched journey and jump on a journey with Jesus. A journey with Jesus, it, it might even be harder than what you're doing now from your own perception, but I promise you it will be better. We invite you to that. Because we love you. And we believe it's true. Praise God. May we be a people who are above reproach. And may the example start with the leaders. May we be a people who walk in a manner worthy of the one who called us by his name. And may we be a people who hold fast to the word and the truth of its teaching. May we be willing to trust it, live in light of it. And defend it when necessary. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for every word of it. I believe that every single word of it is profitable for us as your people. To teach us, to exhort us, to discipline us, to help us. To wield us and guide us and point us in the direction that you would have us to go. I thank you for your word. It's perfect. I thank you for the time that we had submitted underneath the power of the teaching of your word tonight. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord God, that you are well able to fill in the gaps. Anything I missed, uh, Lord, because of my imperfection and my frailty, I thank you. Your Holy Spirit makes up for all that. I thank you. The pressure is not on me. I uh, thank you. You take that and you can handle it. I, just, I pray for these people. I pray for every person within the sound of my voice. I pray, Lord God, that they would understand why it is that you call us to be connected to a body of believers, to be connected. You said, Lord, that, that you are the vine and we are the branches. 
Lord, and, and for us to be connected to you means we're connected to each other. Help us to see that you've done that for our benefit. Not as some arbitrary command or some rule, another thing we have to check off of our list, but God, may we see that to be a part of the local church, to be a part of your church is a great privilege. It's an honor and that it's a blessing to our life. Lord God, I pray for anybody within the sound of my voice that may be called to be a leader among your people. Lord, I ask that they would be cut all the way to the deepest part of their heart by these commands and by these qualifications you've laid out. God, if they're called by you to be a leader and they do not yet meet these qualifications, I ask God that you would, by your Holy Spirit, begin to train them and teach them and shape them and mold them and bring them into compliance with these qualifications for your glory and for their good and for the good of the people that you would call them to serve in your name. Lord God, I pray for every believer within the sound of my voice that even if they never have any intention of doing anything that looks like leadership among your people, that Lord God, they would seek to imitate the faith of those that do. All of this may it be to the obedience of your word for the good of us, your people, and for the glory of you, our King. You're worthy of all that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.